Welcome into the House of L podcast. This is episode 54 for Brian Erlacher, which will be, it's actually quite apropos considering who our guest is this week, Bears. I'm Lawrence Holmes. So happy that you enjoy the podcast, that you've given us another try, or if you're jumping on for the first time, you're like, hey, I thought that sounded interesting when I saw it on Twitter or Instagram. And I thought that I would give it a chance. Well, I'm glad that you did give it a chance because this episode in particular is pretty doggone great. I love every episode like they're my children, but this episode is uh, a something. I can just tell you that right off jump. Mark Grody is the guest this week, and we talk about a lot of cool stuff and some stuff that's not that cool. I'll get to him in a moment. And thanks again for people who have jumped on. By the way, I gave out one Club Dub shirt, thanks to the folks over at Bandwagon Champs, on Saturday. So be looking for videos of me. If you don't follow me on Twitter or Instagram, at Lawrence W. Holmes is where you can find me. And I'm going to be giving out a lot of swag. And I thank the folks over at Bandwagon Champs for hooking me up. So that I could give listeners of the podcast, people who truly enjoy the podcast, an opportunity to win a prize from the podcast until we get our own T-shirts, which is going to be a part of 2019. You're going to be billboards for me, which I appreciate. Until we get our own T-shirts, we are we have to rely on the kindness of others. And Bandwagon Champs have been nice enough. And they got the cool shirt, the Club Dub shirt. Everyone wants one. I've got three more to give out. So be on the lookout for that. Really love the episode last week with Tony Andraki, the Joe Ostrowski episode. If you have not listened to it, you need to go back and check it out. The feedback on both of those episodes has been phenomenal. Joe dropped a lot of truth bombs in there about the industry and, and where it's going. And I thought it was significant for us to talk about it. Tony talked a lot about what it's like for young broadcasters coming up and told an incredible story about covering an NBA locker room that you have to hear. So if you haven't listened to those, if you clicked on this one because you like Mark Grody, thank you because I like him too. But go back and listen to those previous episodes. They're, they're really, really good. Thank you. We have, uh, we're now at like 205,000 downloads. It was like we jumped real quick. Over the 200,000 mark. And I don't know if we even necessarily celebrated it. And maybe I shouldn't. Maybe that's not a spike the football number. Maybe the next spike the football number is 500,000. Or maybe 250. You let me know. Email me. Houseoflpodcast at gmail.com. And you let me know. But keep listening and tell a friend about the podcast. Okay? Do that for me. Get more people listening. If you uh, subscribe on iTunes... If you could give us a rating and a review, that would be extremely helpful because that's how their metrics work. And we've gotten great ratings, so I'm not saying I'm not grateful. I'm eternally grateful for helping getting the podcast in the top 200 in the category and all that good stuff. But if you're new and you're listening on iTunes, give us five stars, write a review, say how much you like the guest. You don't even have to say you like me. Just say you like the guest. And we're good. Okay. Cool. Now to the episode. I love Mark Grody. I love Mark Grody. He is one of the funniest guys that I've ever met in sports radio. 
point blank. Maybe the funniest. This episode, I've never laughed as much in an episode as I laughed in this episode. And my hope is that you will laugh too. But there's also some serious conversation about Mark's issues with alcohol and what that has done to his career, what that has done to his relationships. And he ends up being a therapist for me as I talk about some of my issues with anger. So I think that you'll get something out of it. Mark Grody was very honest and open with his thoughts on a lot of things. And if you love him, I I don't see why you walk away from this not loving him more. And if you don't love him, you're going to love him by the end of this hour and a half that we chatted. So this is Groats, my man. Mark pulled relevant stuff for the show. Okay, yeah, some sports thoughts. Yeah. Sports and sports. Sportsy sports. I will actually have sports thoughts for you. Okay, good. Because I know that you have them and you like yeah, to share them absolutely. occasionally. Um, but I mean, we are rolling, just so you know. Okay, headphones are on. Oh, okay, good. In three, two, <laughs> one, go. Perfect. That's great. That yeah. actually helps me out quite a bit absolutely. when I'm doing all the editing of it. How was your first year covering the Bears? It was a blast. I had a blast. And I don't know if I expected to have a blast going into it. I was trying to... I, I, I'm going to wait a little while still to confirm what I'm about to say because it hasn't been that long now. Like the offseason, we're not too far into it at this point. It may have been my favorite professional year. And I've had a lot, like a lot of us in this business, I've had a lot of jobs and a lot of really good jobs. I had the Cubs gig for three years, which was great. He got you a ring. I got me a ring. I worked at BBM as a reporter where I was just covering all of our sports teams. I worked downstate at some really fun talk show host gigs, um, you know, in Springfield and Peoria that I absolutely loved. But uh, there was something about this year. I think that there was a little bit of it was relative to the time that was consumed working with the Cubs. That that's a, like when you cover a baseball team every day, it is lifestyle. Isn't football a great? Oh! Isn't it great? And that's why I'm allowing for the possibility that that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. Isn't it great? Oh! It's so great. It's a nine to five job. It is a nine to five job. And then there's the day where the players have the day off. <laughs> right. The designated so- day each week. Where you know you don't have to go to Hallis Hall. Let me be honest. With the way Matt Nagy runs things, it was a it was actually a ten to three job. That, that's that's what it was. You know, sounds about right. Come on air around here. So yeah, I I loved getting back into a football locker room, which I I'd done just as a reporter at large, but just being in a football locker room every day, getting to know a new team, the success of the team. Didn't hurt at all. So, and I have nothing else to go on. My first year as the Bears sideline reported, the team is 12 and four. So I am taking all these things into account when I say, and I think it was my most favorite year as a professional broadcaster. For people who don't understand the grind of covering a baseball team, what's it like? So let's just say it's a, it's a seven Oh five Cubs game. Cause I covered Cubs games, you know, you get to the ballpark at eh, probably about 2.30 or so. Set yourself up wherever your spot may be. In, in this case, it was in the Cubs radio broadcast booth. Get your computer out. Get your notes out. Get everything logistically set up. And then you have 
unlike any other locker room, you have about two and a half, three hours worth of locker room time before a game, where a lot of it is, unfortunately, just standing around and twiddling your thumbs and talking to other reporters because sometimes there's just not a lot going on. But you're... In my case, I was down there for the pregame show, and my job was to procure one or two interviews for the pregame show. So it it takes time to do that, to get the guys to find out what their availability is, you know, if it's a good interview or not so good that maybe you change, you audible, you go to something else. So, So there's that part. Maybe that wraps up around four or five. Then you get back upstairs to the broadcast booth. You edit your interviews. You get all your and, and I'm kind of going through this quickly. No, but, take as much time okay. as you need because because okay. I'm I'm all for I I'm not sure that people understand that like it's not like you don't show up. Let's say it's a seven oh five. You don't show up at six thirty. Some people do. Some people do. <laughs> and, and but I mean like I can't always, if you want to do the job right. You have to show up. Correct. Right. I have always hated the life of doing baseball and. When I, I would fill in, and I filled in, I think, seven games this past season because either Zach was out or Coom was out or Pat was out, and so you just kind of move everything around a little bit, and I was just always the Zach. Like, wherever they needed to move Zach, then I became the Zach and did that thing. And I looked forward to it because it was a change of pace, but it is an absolute grind. And what I hated about it, that that dead period between when the clubhouse closes and when the broadcast begins. I always found myself just bored out of my mind before there was actually any action. And then it's so great when the game does start. Yes. Then you're like, ah, I can stop trying to figure out what I need to do next because in this age that we live, there is obviously mountains and never-ending prep that you can do. You could always be preparing, and sometimes that's not good because there's so much information that you never really give yourself time to zero in on one thing. You know, I'm, I was thinking about this as you were talking to, to that end of, of baseball and it being a grind. My first year, 2015, um, was the first time that I covered baseball every day in my life, was doing the pre- and post-game show. It was on WBBM at the time. When the Cubs were swept by the Mets after that sweep, horrible sweep after really some triumphant victories against Pittsburgh and St. Louis, you have this horrible sweep. I, I have to admit, I was relieved. I was so happy the season was over. There, it was. I, I had, was running on fumes. I was doing a lot of extra work. Like since I was at BBM, I had to do like 18 wraps a day. Mm-hmm. These these mini little 40 to, to a minute reports. So and I was just gassed. I mean, I was done. Not that I didn't want the Cubs to advance onto the World Series and do great things that year. I have to admit, I was I was done. I was I was not like depressed that the Cubs were swept by the Mets in 2015. What's it like to have your own World Series ring? It was, it, it is, man, I want this to sound genuine. Um, it was very humbling because it was not something that I expected to get. It was, it was really annoying, actually, Lawrence. Before, after they won the World Series, everybody started asking me, oh, you're going to get a World Series ring? Are you going to get a World Series ring? I hadn't really thought about it because I just didn't think that I would rank in that regard, that the headliners are Pat Hughes and Ron Coomer, you know, Len Casper, Jim Deshays. I, of course, figured those guys are going to get them. But, I, you know, I'm second row. I get that. I understood my place 
in you know the broadcast world. So and everybody kept asking me, and it got to the point where if I wasn't going to get one, it was going to be a huge disappointment because everybody had built this up to me. You know what I mean? Everyone's yeah. assuming, and everybody's like, "Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna get one. You were part of the broadcast. Heck, you did some play-by-play. You, I mean, anybody that does play-by-play for a one or two games, you have to get it." And it, I don't know. I, I started to get really annoyed with people. And I still didn't think I was going to get one. And then I, I remember the day that I received an email. It was from Tom Ricketts' office. One of his assistants sent me an email saying something along the lines of, Mark, congratulations. We would like to make you part of our, you know, we would like to award you, or I don't remember how the, how the wording was. We would like to, we'd like to give you a ring. We need you to go ahead and get sized at a jewelry store and then mail it back into this, you know, this very official sort of form letter. And I was just ecstatic. I had a, I had a girlfriend at the time. I remember calling her. I said, I said, babe, we gotta, we gotta go to the mall. We gotta get a ring sized. Well, well, I mean, come, <laughs> which dude, is a horrible thing to say. It's a horrible thing <laughs> to tell we're, someone. We're not together anymore, by the way, Lawrence. <laughs> we are not together. <laughs> that relationship lasted about another six months after that. that that's not bad, actually. But um, yeah, so go to the mall and get sized and and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was a thrilling moment. For me, I drove a lot of people crazy because I wore it so much. Yeah, of course. You're looking at me like, of course you got to wear it a lot. Why wouldn't right? you? Exactly. Well, why was it driving people crazy that you wore it? I think people close to me, like like family. Like maybe I'm just talking about my mom because my mom thought that you need to put that in a security box at the bank. Maybe you need to give that to your father and I to take care of. Oh. So it was... Because you're not an adult. Right? <laughs> well, you know. Um, so it was like, I think that the people that were around me most were like, oh, you're wearing that thing again? Yeah, maybe they were just jealous. You know, that could have been. I kept thinking about if the Cubs won the World Series last year, would I be on the list of people who would get one, which would have been really weird considering that I'm a White Sox fan? Yeah. And I kept wondering, like, what if they offered me a ring? You have to take it, right? Why wouldn't you? You would, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I had come to the conclusion that I was going to take the ring, but then what happens? What do you mean? Then does the White Sox fan wear the Cubs oh, championship ring? Do you wear it? Probably not. I, that's that's kind of where I was like, like I I have it. No, you wouldn't want to wear. It. You show it to people though. You but have I would it. Show it to you people. bring it to parties. You bring it to family get-togethers. Um, you know, you just have it. Have it. Keep it in the little box. It's and, so funny because this weekend I'm actually doing something at Soxfest with John Cangelosi, and I saw John and I did White Sox post the night that they won the World Series. On the score. Now, they were still on 1,000 at the time. So we were doing our version of the post game, and I saw the power of a ring because we had done like a bunch of shows like leading up to it. And he had his Marlins championship ring. And we walked into the place, and it was like a magnet. I have never, <laughs> like, it was just like women were just all, all over the place. Like, it was like they knew. It was like a homing beacon 
And he was like, oh, yeah, I won this. I'm with the Marlins. Da, 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 da. This old thing. This thing right here. I don't even know that I have it on. This huge piece of gaudy jewelry that I'm wearing. I'm actually doing something to him this weekend. It'll be good to see John. Um, but, yeah, I... I was tr- I was really like trying to figure out whether or not I would wear it if I won it. I was gonna like I said I don't think that man I'm trying to no I don't if I, if I had true fandom in the way that you do with the White Sox probably not I don't know that you would feel I mean maybe maybe a day or two but I don't see that happening. But I wonder how the White Sox would have felt about it too. Like if if I could have reached out to the White Sox and been like, so what do you guys think? They would have disowned me, like, immediately. Well, then you could be like, look, I, this this should motivate you guys to, you know, I, I don't want this ring. I'd love to have one. I want the other ring. But That's I right. got this one. This is all I have for now. It's got a lot of shiny diamonds and rubies. And By the way, there. I was just thinking, you you were talking about doing the postgame show here at The Score mm-hmm. in 2005. I was doing the postgame show, like, our version of the postgame show on WBBM that, that very same night. So I was... In Houston, on on the boots on the ground, doing live interviews with the players, and uh, Ron Gleason, and hello, sir, was hosting the the show. So he would he would do his thing up there. Hello, sir. I'm Mark uh, Grody. Uh, Grody, you better get it right. Let's go. Um, go. Let's get it down to Zach Zaman and the boys. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, try the tri-colored tortellini. But uh, we were doing our our post game show, and it was that that was to that moment covering because I got to go to all the the different to Boston and to Anaheim, and then ultimately in Houston. That to that point was my my favorite career moment to have covered a White Sox World Series. Didn't get a ring though. Didn't get a ring. That's typical. Uh, but I mean, the games <laughs> weren't over there. They were still over one thousand. Sure. So you weren't going to get a, a, no, a ring. No, there was anyway. not even a thought of that. Nobody even asked me then. So now you're in in the place where. You're, you and Zach switch roles where he does pre and post for Cubs. You do sidelines for Bears. Were you bothered when the switch came down? Yes. Yes, I was bothered when the switch came down. I was shocked by it, to be honest with you. Um, I remember I came in here to our, our studios in downtown Chicago to talk to our boss, Mitch Rosen, and it was just going to be our usual off-season talk. I probably was going to address some money matters and some off-season ideas. It was, you know, it was going to be it was a kind of an exciting idea, you know, to have a little chat about what's going to happen. And uh, I got to close the door. <laughs> close the door, Marky. And uh, that's like, never good. Yeah. And then he was, you know, he told me that we are we're going to do a a switch that we are going to switch you and Zach. Zach will be doing the Cubs for now on, and you will be doing the Bears. And I honestly, honestly, I thought he was kidding. I was waiting for because sometimes Mitch will do that. Sometimes he will he'll make little funnies like that. But it it he did not. He did not say I'm just kidding. And I I was just stunned, stunned. Um and you know, walking out of there, walking home and again, I had a girlfriend at the time. She was at my place, and I just walked in, and I said, because this is the way I looked at it. Then I was like, I took my coat off, and I walked home stunned. I was like, I just lost the Cubs job, and she was like, What? What are you talking about? Because she was only with me because I had the Cubs job. So, um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Can you imagine? She's like, I'm out of here, buddy. Guess what? Yeah. Guess what else you lost? Yeah, go Cubs, go. Um, so it was just I. I 
I and who knows, maybe that's true. Um, I, I was just stunned and shocked and upset. Um, and like I almost felt like demoralized about it. And then and once I started telling people, I got the old, um, you know, maybe maybe this will actually work out for the better. Maybe this is a sign from above. Um, you know, and all that kind of crap that sounds horrible when you're kind of in the midst of that, whatever it was. I don't know if it was a depression. I was just really upset. I was really upset by it. Um, but things did work out for the better. Yeah, you took to it. I, I remember we talked a little bit after the changes happened, and I wanted to be as helpful as I could be uh, with, with you and the Bears beat. You took to it quick, and I appreciate that about you. Like, you didn't. I could tell you were upset, but you didn't let it affect your enthusiasm for what the new challenge was. How how were you able to compartmentalize that? I was able to compartmentalize it by realizing that they didn't send me to Siberia, that they handed me another great job, that covering the Bears, you know, Bears and Cubs in this town are the two huge beats. And getting to be a part of not not just covering the bears but being part of that organization or being part of our organization but in an intimate way with the bears as the sideline reporter and all that kind of stuff so to me it was i realized that it was a great job and that that you better do this job really well because it is an incredible as you know an incredibly important beat in this town that people take very seriously and everybody cares about because we're divided in a lot of ways in this city as far as sports are concerned, but everybody seems to to love the Bears. So um, so I took it that seriously. I wanted to be great at what I did. You know, Joniak and, and Thayer and the rest of the crew were great because – you know, they they knew I was a veteran reporter. It wasn't like I was some, you know, rookie, you know, who, who's never been around a clubhouse. And they kind of treated me as such. Like Joniak, who was basically in charge of that broadcast, gave me tons of autonomy in terms of, you know, I do two, three, four interviews for our pregame show. And he was like, I trust you to find the good angles to decide, you know, who, who'd you get? You know, I don't think there was, you know, I think he used just about everything that I put out there. So... I yeah I mean I love the job and here's another part too Lawrence that I got to be more a part of the score here's another reason I love the job was like with the Cubs you're kind of in your own Cubs world and Correct. that ship just sort of sails with with Ron and Coom and now with Zach like they're all you know there's very little you nothing know, you'll have Zach on every once in a while I, but, I haven't seen Zach in months right. Yeah, you you are you're you're with the Cubs. You're not really with the score, even though it's on the score. So I think I think people know what I'm saying when I say that. With the Bears, it's like I'm I am a reporter. I'm a sideline reporter. So I'm I am here, you know, going on the shows, whether it's in studio or on the phone. And I love that. I love that interaction, getting to flex a little bit of personality, being able to bring some news and being that guy. I for, I'd forgotten how much I loved that part of it. So that was, that's just one of many reasons why I love the job, just getting to be feeling like I was more part of the score again. Was there, what was the moment as you're, you're transitioning where you're like, okay, I think I got it now (laughs) because there's, there's a, there's a transition period of you're like, you spent your, your, your last few years covering baseball. And now it's like, you're covering football, but it's different. It's different than Mark Rody, the update guy. Oh yeah, talking about the Bears, or even Mark Rody, the talk show host, talking about the Bears. You've now become the authority 
on the Bears. So so when was the moment where you you could you were able to take a deep breath and go, I got this? I don't know if there was that moment because I I don't even know if I got this yet. You know what I mean? Like there was so many like let's just say as a as a sideline reporter. It again, I, I was given some general ideas on how to do the job, but for the most part, it was like, go do it, go do it, go find what you think is interesting. And I, I just remember, like, maybe, maybe four or five games into the season, I think I started to get a better rhythm of what was important and what was not. You know what I mean? Like, beginning, like, for instance, like in the preseason, like what I, what I always do, I'd be like, oh man, they're, the coaches are, are gathering around with Mitch Trubisky and they're all looking at the iPad and, and they're, you know, they're really going at it over there in terms of the coaching and the instruction. Then I realized that that happens all the time. So what I was saying was, you know, while they didn't reject my reports, maybe it wasn't that, to me anyway, after a while I'm like, you know what, this happens a lot. So, so maybe I need to stop reporting on that and try to find more interesting things to report on. Um, as far as like the locker room thing, that's a that's an entire process. Maybe it's week thirteen or fourteen was when I started to to the, where the players really started to trust me because you know how that is. I mean, they got to trust you. They got to see you. They got to see you, and they saw me enough to that point where you start to get that. You know, where I say hi to a player, I'll be like, you know, hi Akeem, and then it's, hey, what's going on, Mark? And then you're like, oh, you finally know my name, or you finally will say my name, and you're a little bit surprised by it. Um, so, yeah, it was. It took me all year to figure this job out and to start to get connections, and then I can't wait till next year because it's the next level. Then now I go into it knowing these players, and they know me, so I'll start to get even better at the job in a year that I thought I did okay. You're one of the funniest dudes I know, man. I think that you're an incredible talk show host. Thank you. And and it's because you're able to bring levity to the air. Is there any comedy training in your background? I actually used to do stand-up comedy. No. You ready for this? Yeah. I don't think I've ever talked about this on the score. This is going to be hilarious. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes. Yes. So anyway... Um, in, a, in one of my other radio lives, I, w- I worked in Springfield. I went to school at Illinois State, so that's what sort of kept me in central Illinois for my other jobs leading up to the score. So I worked in Springfield. I was a talk show host. I did a 9 to noon talk show, which is just a great, great shift. 9 to noon, and I did it with a former congressman. So it was like that. It was the the wacky, you know, the, I'm the wacky guy, and he's like the serious comedian, or serious comedian, serious politician. So it was a fun show that we did. But uh, while I was down there, I had always wanted to try stand-up comedy. So there's a place called, and I think that they still exist around the country, the Funny Bone Comedy Club. Um, and they were doing, like, um, like a contest to, like, you could try out and if, you know, 30, 40 people together. And whoever wins this gets to open up for the real comedians, like, be the opening act. So I was like, what the hell do I have to lose? So I was like, I'm just going to try to do this thing, went up against, you know, 40 or 50 other guys and gals, and I won second place. So not good enough to to be the opening act, but the, the guy that won, he he bailed out. So so they called me. They said, hey, you want to come to the Funny Bone Comedy Club and be, you be our opening act guy, like two or three times, like over the weekends, like two shows on Friday, two shows on Saturday, and you open up for real guys, for real comedians. And so you do 15 minutes and man, 
It, I was good for 15 minutes, but if I had to go much more than 15 minutes, it would have gone downhill because it is hard, man. It is hard to be to keep an audience engaged and be funny for 15 minutes, and then I would watch these real comedians get up there and do it for an hour, and I'm like, I'm not quite ready for this yet. But I did it. I did it for three or four months or so. I was getting cash. They give me like 50 bucks a show. Um so who is the most famous comedian you open for? Jimmy Walker. Jimmy J.J. Walker? <laughs> That's right. At the Funny Bone? That's right. In Springfield, Illinois, baby. Jimmy Walker. Yeah, there's, there's a, there was a lot of guys there. And I, if, like, I don't remember their names, but I bet that they're guys that are familiar to people now. Like I should remember. Um, like really just, you know, th- these were professional touring comedians. Um, and I... I, I did it. You know what I mean? I was I was pretty funny, except for one time. I, I did flop completely one time and walked off stage. So so I did have that terrifying moment, but they had me back. So that's all that mattered. Good for you. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I asked the question because you're so good that it's it's like you've been trained. And I had no idea <laughs> that you were actually doing stand-up. Well, I did it. And then this stupid place, this stupid city came calling and it ruined my whole comedy career because I was like, ah, oh. so I, I got a job here. So it was like, I kind of left that behind. Like, I don't know. I felt more comfortable doing that when I was working in Springfield, but then all of a sudden I got the full-time gig here and it sort of put the, the comedy thing away, which I kind of regret. And I'm, I, I, Hey, I'm not necessarily done with it. Well, you know? I was going to say, would you ever consider jumping back on stage? I've been thinking about it this off season, actually. Like, I have no excuse. Like, none. Like, like in my baseball years, I, I did have an excuse because I would come in here and still work three or four times a week doing updates or whatever, but we don't really do updates anymore. So I have a little bit more free time. I have on my, my little phone, on my notepad, whenever I think of something funny, I, I write it down. So I've been doing that for about the last year or two. So... I'm thinking about getting getting the band back together, possibly, and go to a uh, go to a place that does open mic. I won't tell anybody. I won't tell anybody until I feel comfortable. Like I'll just go. Um, but I and I remember when I was working in Springfield, I had a roommate, and he. I was practicing in the shower, and um, you know you got to talk these things through these these hilarious thoughts that sure. I have. you got to you got to string it together. You got to put a show together. I remember going and doing one of my opening acts, and this guy, my roommate, he shows up. He's like, he's like, why didn't you tell me you were doing this? And uh, I was like, I don't want anybody to know. You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm going to be that good. And I, I don't want to have the pressure of people I know watching until I, until I get good at it. So, okay. Yeah. I, I, that's fantastic. And I hope that you do, if you want to do it, I hope that you go out there and, and kill. Like, that would be awesome. I've, one of the guys actually was on the podcast earlier this year, Rami Makloof, uh, who was in Milwaukee doing the uh, afternoon drive show in Milwaukee and now is in Minneapolis doing the afternoon I drive show. I think I've show. heard he's been on your show. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he's been on a little bit. He's a stand-up. Okay. And so he would leave his talk show, heads of the comedy club. Yeah. And he's actually starting to get some traction. And I said, like, how does your, how is your comedy life now affected by the fact that you built up this audience and people who know you in Milwaukee – it's almost like you have to start all over again with the stand-up scene yeah. in Minneapolis. And then he was like, there's really not a stand-up scene in Milwaukee. Huh. There's actually a much better stand-up scene in Minneapolis. Interesting. I was like, okay. Yeah, there's a great scene here. I mean, that's for sure. There's so many places that have 
you know, open mic nights. And that's obviously where I would go. I don't think I would be going to a real comedy club at this point saying, you know what? I'm your opening act. Here I am. Um, unless I'd start to get some more reps. Who was the, the comedian? Who were the comedians that kind of inspired you? Ooh, who was my like my favorite comedians? I, I don't think I do anything. Well, some some things like this. I mean, my favorite comedian of all time is Eddie Murphy. Like, like he is number one with a bullet. I mean, he is he is it. Uh, but he's also the type of guy that when you see do stand up comedy, you're like, there's no way I can do that, you know. So some of the impersonations and stuff like that, which he just does as a sidebar. I mean, it, mostly he's just straight up hilarious. Yeah, but so like so do you. Like every now you did it earlier, like. Every now and again, you'll just jump right. into an impersonation. Right. Yeah, that's true. And I try to do it like that as opposed to just, like, ramming it down people's throats. You know what I mean? Um, but, yeah, Eddie Murphy, for sure. Man, like, I love, like, Saturday Night Live. Like, that's, like, all those all those comedians from all the shows from the 90s, even to present day, I don't miss Saturday Night Live. I don't miss watching it, as in I watch it every time it's available. That's, like, the dream job. Like, that's the... That's the, like, I'm probably past the point where I could do something like that, but, you know, radio and TV and all that kind of stuff, that's not the dream. The dream job for me would be to be on that stage, to be live from New York at Saturday night. Okay, so you mentioned Eddie Murphy and his stand-up. Yeah. Let's take Eddie out. Who's your next favorite or favorite cast member of SNL? Ooh, like of all time? Yes. (laughs) Wow. Um, I, I do love the... Will Ferrell, um, absolutely. Um, you know, if you go all the way back, I did like Joe Piscopo. He's gone, though. I mean, like, he just kind of really wasn't nothing for a long time. And then started lifting weights. Yeah, and then it got started weird. singing. And yeah, it just it really didn't work out. Um, you know, I did You li- a Phil Hartman guy? Oh, yeah, Phil Hartman for sure. Absolutely. Phil Hartman was great, extremely versatile. Was never, like, a superstar, but... He he did everything really well. There, there. It's to me him and Keenan, yeah. Like are two guys that you're you're never gonna. They're never never going to get vehicles for like movies or anything. Yeah. But you need them because those guys kind of glue different casts together. Yeah. Keenan's interesting because I think he's actually getting a show now. He might be leaving the show. No. Was he been there 16 years? Yeah. And you know what? I, I have to be honest. I used to not like him because in every single skit, he starts to laugh like you see. And then I started to appreciate that. And then he did, what's up with that? And I was like, that's hilarious. What's up with that? Yeah, what's him, up with that? Jason Sudeikis doing the running oh, man yeah, in the background. Oh, that was so great. Yes, there's another guy, Jason Sudeikis. He, he is absolutely wonderful so yeah man I'd, I'd have to i gotta really think about that i could probably put together like a top 50 list of snl characters but it's just it's just like it it's that place that show has a place in my heart and you know every once in a while i get that you know um little bit of stress feeling like i gotta do this still but it's really a hard path so <laughs> so the the love of comedy started before the love of sports or were they intertwined definitely intertwined i think no, I th- actually no the sports was was probably number one i grew up in a in a household which welcomed humor my dad is hilarious you know he's just a fun happy guy my brothers are like that too my mom keeps us all sort of on an even keel uh but yeah humor was very loud in my household but it was always sports first and then 
Yeah, I think about junior high or so was probably where I started to really get the comedy bug, and I was able to make classmates laugh a lot by doing impersonations, shockingly, Lawrence, of the teachers that we had. So Bad. I had a really good teacher impersonations at Peacock and I task. It was just unbelievable. <laughs> oh, my Mr. Miller. Oh, it was so good. Oh, yeah. Why was your Mr. Miller so good? Because he was the shop teacher. Um, and, uh, he, he was, <laughs> he was this sort of, he was always wearing the big smock and he had this table saw that only he was allowed to use. And his big thing was cleanup time, you know, cleanup time in shop class. And it was always, it's about time to clean up everybody. And, oh, Lawrence, it was, let me tell you, the cool kids laughed, man. They thought I, they're like, I like this kid, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's about time to clean up. That's what it was. Oh yeah, see Mr. Miller, he's hilarious. Oh my god, that's great. Um and yeah. That, uh, <laughs> Jones 6, the science teacher, take out your packets please. Take out your packets. We had these packets we had to take out. Take out your packets please. Like if my buddies from junior high hear this, they, they will be rolling right now. I don't even oh. know these people, and I think it's hilarious. Oh, yeah, they were characters. Yes. So, yeah, that I started to get recognition, Lawrence, for my, for my comedy stylings in junior high. That's when I, yeah, started to get a little noticed in that regard. Favorite funny movie? Fa- you know what? Dumb and Dumber. Dumb and Dumber. And my favorite scene in Dumb and Dumber is when they are... Um, they're sitting, they're having the, the two of them are at the restaurant with the criminal and they're, they're putting the, the peppers in his burger mm-hmm. and they're trying to get him to take a bite out of the burger. And he goes, how's your burger? Cause he wasn't eating the burger. Um, so to me, that was delightfully the best part of that movie. But I, yeah, I would probably say, I would probably say dumb and dumber. Yeah. You talked about doing all these characters. You also worked with a character on the Wake and Bake Club in Steve Rosenblum. Yes. What's Rosie like? Rosie, like when we first started doing that show, I didn't think it was going to last because it's Rosenblum's show. You know what I mean? Like he, he's the lead of the show. I was just the new addition to it. I was his sidekick and, and update guy. And it really wasn't working very well early on because we were kind of doing two different shows. That's what was going on. You know, I, he was doing his show as he should be. And I was trying to force it in a different direction. And then in, in Rosenblum, even, I think he was the one that said, then we just kind of decided we we will realize what our strengths were and we stopped trying to fight each other and we appreciated each other so um i loved working with stevie sunshine as it turned out even though there was times when i was just about done um doing it but yeah i figured out what he was i figured out what his thing was i figured out what i should fight him on and what i shouldn't fight him on and he enabled me finally you know what i mean he gave me my stage and my openings when there was like a, hey, what would Lou Pinella say? And DeRosa. Um, he would let me do that. He, he, he would let me go on. And, and DeRosa, he's a good ball player. He he, he, he hits him right up the and, and, and that's all you really need to know. You know, I, I always thought that the, uh, that Lou Pinella should do movie reviews. That it would just be it's like dumb and dumber. It, 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 it's two guys. They're 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 not real bright, and and they they take the suitcase from a girl, and and they try to, they try to get it back to her, and, and, and they can't find her. So so at the end they they finally do, and it's a Samsonite, and 
And, and that's all you really need to know. Like, like, like they all end with, and, and that's all you like. He would make it so simple, like Lou Pinella's 30 second reviews. So, yes, he, he was, uh, it was rough to cover him. Oh, yeah. Merton, he was, he was the, the funniest Lou Pinella moment of all time was when. Remember when they sent Milton Bradley home? It oh, was a yeah. Cubs Sox game, right? I, I, I believe I was there. I'm sure you were. And we were all there. It was Cubs Sox, all hands on deck. And Lou just, he just had this helpless look. He was going to tell us what happened with with Bradley. And he's, he, he's like, hey, hey there, was, there was a problem. And, and we're all like, okay, so what happened, Lou? We, we had to send him home. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what? What? Yeah, yeah. He was so resigned to like he was silent. Something happened, and 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 we told him to go home. Go, go home. That was that. Oh my god! Yes, this is, this is the most I've ever laughed on any episode <laughs> of Alcibel, which is great. Which is really, really great. I I want to ask you a little bit about. You've kind of broken down like some of the things that you're interested in and maybe that you want to do, but is talk show host one of them? Like, is is that a even a goal for you? Because I know sometimes I'll drag you in and say, hey, can we hang out and do a show together? But is that on the list of things you even want to do? Yeah, I think it is something I want to do, but it's not the end all be all. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to be a talk show host to have been fulfilled in my career at the score or just in sports radio in general. I think it is something, but I mean, you have to be realistic about things. You know what I mean? It's a hard nut to crack. You know what I mean? Um, you know that you, you've done very well. So it's, it's, it, you have to be realistic and I, I think I could do it. I think I'd be really good at it, but it's not, I guess it's a matter of waiting your turn and, trying to find out who's on your side. Because unfortunately, for better or for worse, because I think it's helped me and hurt me in my career, some people really like you and some people don't. You know what I mean? Some, and it comes down to one man sometimes. And it's hard like because sometimes you don't even know. You know, like yeah. you're, you're walking around sitting there thinking everything's gravy, and then you realize that someone doesn't like you. Yeah, that's it. That's, yep, I've, I've had it happen to me in my career. You know what I mean? Where you don't have a job because one person loved you in this job, but somebody else didn't love you in this job. Um, but, you know, I'd love to be a talk show host. Absolutely. I think, yes, it, when openings occur, I'm going to raise my hand. But I, I don't think I, I never thought I would be a Cubs pre and post game host. Not that I thought that was unattainable. I just, yeah. I just like, I, I think I'm good enough to have done it, but you know, they were at GN all those years. I never thought they would, they would leave there and I, they had their people. So I never even considered the possibility. So that came along. I never thought I'd be the Bears sideline guy. <laughs> I mean, like, like every step of my career, I don't think I thought I would do that. And I kind of like rolling that way. I'm fine with that. We'll see what I'm doing in three years. How'd the fugitive thing come about? Um, actually I've been doing that one. Let's see. I'm 47 right now. Is that right? Yeah. I just turned 47. I started doing that. Well, I guess in obviously after it came out, I, I remember doing that when I was like 26 or 27, uh, for the sake of, uh, of a girl that I was with and she thought it was hilarious. It is hilarious. And I'm just wondering like why it struck a chord with you. Uh, that's a good question. I think maybe cause it was in my wheelhouse. Like of impersonation, like vocal range yeah. and everything else. You switch the sample. I mean, it's me, man. You find this man. I mean, I am Harrison Ford. I can't, I can't watch the movie now. <laughs> I know nobody can without you. 
And I was telling, like, Mel and I were watching it, and I'm just sitting there doing your impersonation of Harrison Ford, and she's like, shut up. Like, this we all isn't love growing, funny. honey, but that's enough. It's not funny. Yeah. I'm like, it's, and then she, like, she actually, at one point, I started laughing so hard that I was crying, and she took a video. Of me, really making myself laugh by doing Mark Grody's impersonation of Harrison Ford. What you should have told her was Mel. You falsified your research. Swatch the sample. You can hyperprovasic. Oh yeah, and I and I love doing it too. Uh, so yeah, I've made a lot. I I have been. Yeah, I've been using that little ditty since you know since it came since the movie came out basically because like you said yeah it was, it's kind of in my vocal range. I I didn't really like like after you see it a couple times like there's stuff that initially when you see it you it just goes over you and then you can watch it with context like Jane Lynch is in the yes, future yes right yeah like as a lab tech uh-huh. just like just there right very small part and and th- they couldn't have done a better job. Of getting Chicago police officers in. That oh movie. my goodness, Detective Rossetti. I mean, come on. How the hell should I know? How, how should I know what's going on over there? Um, <laughs> the only problem that I ever have with the movie is that they are clearly, like, he's clearly, like, from the street signs themselves, like, he's over on the far southeast side of the city when he's staying at the, at the house that gets raided and all that uh-huh. stuff. And it's so easy for him to get back downtown. <laughs> and it's like, no, no, uh-uh. no, it's not the way it works. They still don't. The red line still doesn't go past 95th Street, even though they're now working on that being yeah. a possibility. He would have had to have taken like three buses and the L to get to where he was. And like, that's the only thing that bothers me. The yeah. absolute only thing. Well, I'm bothered by a couple things or actually just one thing stands out that h- how is it that, you know, you have this Dr. Richard Kimball, who is this stately man. I mean, clearly that's the, that's what he was when he was bearded and he was a very beloved doctor in the community. And then all of a sudden he's Indiana Jones. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden he's an athlete and then a fighter. He's a fighter at the end when he and Nichols go at it. And he's punching people out. So, you know, you have to suspend reality, but that always cracks me up. Have you ever seen the original no okay so the tv show right yeah Yeah. so my mother was a huge fan of it and if we go back you know pre-mash like the finale of the fugitive was like the highest rated television show ever and my mom gets a kick out of it because she's like at the end he beats the hell out of that one-armed man (laughs) (laughs) what about that one-armed guy (laughs) has he got one of these the little hook has he got one of these things I'll detect the Rosetti. <laughs> and and she used to love it. So when the movie came out, she was she was totally down with it. But that movie, like every you have now ruined it or enhanced it. I, I'm gonna go with enhanced. Okay, I appreciate you that. You have now enhanced that movie for me. Right. Because of what you do with it. No joke. I probably average about, I would say, uh, I don't want to overestimate this, probably five or six tweets, texts. Social media, you know, um, suggest or not suggestions, but comments because people watch The Fugitive because it's on so often because, you know, AMC runs it, TNT runs it. It's always on and it's such a great movie. And I have, for better or for worse, actually, I'm going to say for better, am highly associated with that movie in this town now. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, yeah, I think so. I'm, there are worse have things to be than associated with a, a great movie with Academy Award winning actors. I'm totally cool with that. Absolutely. Harrison Ford and I. Harrison's a, he's a 
And you know what's real? All right, it's I'm very not, disappointing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this one more time, Go. like one more thing about this, and then I'm gonna leave it alone. Okay. But now I also do the Grody for every Harrison Ford role. Oh, of course. So short round. I, I'm 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 laughing at Indiana Jones. I'm laughing at Star Wars. Like uh-huh. even this past Chewy. Star Wars, I'm I'm just like hearing it in Grody uh-huh. voice. Laugh it up, fuzzball. <laughs> So that's probably a bad thing for me. Yeah, because then you can't enjoy it the way you want to enjoy it. No, so. it's, it's actually the way that I want okay. to enjoy it now. All right. I, like I said, you have absolutely enhanced okay. things for me. So, <laughs> okay. so don't feel I, bad about that. I appreciate that. that. Thank you. You've been pretty open about some of the struggles that you've gone through over the last few years. Why did you feel it was important to do that? Uh, yeah, I, I assume you're talking about the drinky drink. Mm-hmm. Yes. You think this is coffee, huh? It is coffee. Well, it, actually, it's funny I say that. I, okay, so I'm an alcoholic, for people who don't know. I, I, and that's that's a word that took me a long time to accept. And I actually used this did used to be vodka. There's no better place to hide your vodka than in a Starbucks cup. Let me tell you that. It sweats a little bit, but meh. Any, anytime, anywhere, you could have your full, your venti vodka. Um, so this was, it's funny that you say that. And, and I will let you inspect this after. I don't need to. I know you don't. That's not my business. <laughs> Why did I feel the need? I felt the need to share with people to honestly, there are a couple sides to it. I mean, I, you know, as part of the program, they always say to admit it to at least one person. You know, this is, we get, we help each other. I mean, this is the only disease that is really, there's nothing a doctor can do unless you're in detox. Um, but it helped me because you know what, Lawrence? This is this is the honest truth to keep me accountable. That when people like if we were out, like, and I saw you out, and you saw me drinking, that maybe you come over to me and be like, "What are you doing, man? What are you drinking for?" Or that maybe you tell on me or something or whomever. So I don't have. I always said that I had un even when I was struggling and people knew like family knew I was an alcoholic they knew I was in the program and I would relapse I always had unknowing enablers I always found another group of friends that had no idea that I was an alcoholic and I would drink with them you know I'd be like oh let's go out with these people let's go out with those people let's go out with them and then I finally said you know what I gotta I gotta be louder about this and uh you know it was after getting out of rehab and that's when I just went on the air and said um you know, I am an alcoholic. I can't drink. It makes me sick, and I will die if I continue to do it. So I said something like that. And then the, the great part about it, and I, uh, admittedly some of it was selfish on my part, but the great part that came out of it was I just remember the tons of text messages and people reaching out and other alcoholics or people who were maybe on the verge of being alcoholics reaching out to me. Everybody's got a story. Everybody knows somebody, it seems like, who's an addict. And that's what I found out. So I feel like in a weird way, I'm no hero, but I think I did help some people by broadcasting it, by letting people know that, yeah, it appears everything's cool with me, but no, I'm an alcoholic. How bad did it get? Uh, It got so bad that I fell on my face and broke my jaw standing outside the old 7-Eleven across the street from Wrigley Field. This is a long time ago. But I just remember I was standing. It was Jack Daniels is what I used to drink. That was that was the alcoholic discovery phase. I was like, oh, Jack, wow. I'd never drank hard alcohol before. But this stuff, man, this gets you drunk fast. And I was just wasted standing outside of the 7-Eleven talking to some dude. We were having a cigarette, drinking, whatever. I don't I don't know who this guy is to this day. Uh, next thing I know, I'm in an ambulance because I, I think I probably just tripped and fell on my face, honestly, because I'm klutzy like that. 
Um, and then I woke up in, I think it's called Thorax Hospital, Thorax, whatever it is on Irving Park Road, um, with a broken jaw. And basically, actually, I didn't know I had a broken jaw at that time. I woke up and basically the staff there was telling me I had to go home because they let me sleep there and sleep off my drunkenness. And I was probably obnoxious, I'm sure. Um, so I remember walk, you talk about a walk of shame. <laughs> I mean, walking home with a broken jaw not knowing what I did and then getting home and then finally crying for help. And then it's been, you know, it's been a, it's been a process, a struggle. I've been to rehabs, uh, only one inpatient rehab. I've been to a lot of outpatient programs where you learn at night. Um, but, um, yeah, to this day, it's a, it's a struggle. And I've had a lot of sobriety, a lot of sobriety. Um, and I feel good as I'm talking to you right now, but every day I have to work on it every day. So what does that entail for someone who doesn't understand alcoholism? When you say you have to work at staying sober, mm -hmm. what are you doing? There, are, I have to go to, I'll just keep it very generic, just to abide by the laws of where I go. But I go to, I, I go to, I try to go to meetings every day. Or I should be going to meetings every day with other alcoholics. Um, I have a sponsor. That, that means that somebody who's been sober for a year or more, who's kind of you like your coach in, you know, you, in, in reading materials in terms of, um, you know, thanking um, people for, for good things in your life. It's, you know, um, so there's a sponsor. There are meetings. There are situational things. Like I need to stay out of certain scenarios like that I know are triggers. I mean, you hear that all the time, triggers. What's a trigger? Um, you know, being in places where you know that, you know, for me, like being at a bar, like outside on a Chicago 70 degree day is a bad idea because I start to get that little fantasy in my head. So I have to stay out of certain situations, read, uh, be coachable, um, go to meetings um, and and call other alcoholics too. talk to other alcoholics so we can kind of I don't know if commiserates the right word, but just talk. And just because only, you know, this person and me are going to understand really what's going on. So it's a struggle. It sucks, too. It really does. That's the that's the thing I'm thinking right now is, as we're talking. It's awful because I love drinking, obviously. And I, it's one of those things that I can't be like the other kids. I can't. I'm not a normal person. And it took me a long time to realize that and even use that word alcoholic because it's such a dirty sounding word. I would imagine that traveling with a baseball team makes sobriety very difficult. <laughs> Ironically, it wasn't maybe because I thought about that, that I projected that to be the case, that I thought it would be this is going to be really hard because you can get alcohol. Like I, I was on the team plane. You can get whatever you want. You know what I mean? You can and it's free, you know, high end stuff. What what do you want? You want oh you want to take a bottle with you? Go ahead. Um, and I never did like, and I think part of that too, was for fear of losing the job too. Like I, this is, this is not where I'm going to exercise my demon. I will do that more privately. Um, but it wasn't as bad as I thought, but here was the one thing I did seclude myself a lot, like on the, on those Cubs trips, I would stay back in the hotel instead of going out to dinner or looking for friends or that kind of thing. And I don't know if that was good. Cause that's white knuckling it. You know what I mean? Like I, I would, stay back in, in terms of going out and having a good time. So I hid myself. I will say that those five-star hotels were pretty cool places to hide yourself. Sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, part of it wasn't good because I would seclude myself and just sort of stay away from people because I was afraid I would act out. So as it stands right now, what's the most difficult part of this for you? Hmm. 
the most difficult. I think it's honestly, Lawrence, it sounds crazy, but still accepting it that that nope, no matter how sober I am right now, no matter how healthy I feel, I can't pick up that drink. It's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Like I can't like I can't count the number of times that I have because you know where I felt the most normal, like a human being, like I'll go like six months, like so say like a year without drinking. And then I'll like go on a date, let's say. And I'll feel like, you know what? I feel safe here. I'm not in some bar. I'm sitting here. And I'm with a date, and she's gonna order a glass of wine. I think I will too, and I'll feel like I'll feel normal. I feel safe, and then it goes great. Maybe I'll have two glasses, but then you know what happens? The next day, Lawrence, I have three or four bottles of wine. <laughs> it's just because I got that little taste. So the hardest part for me is to continue to accept it, to realize it, and not tempt fate. You know, not not fall to rock bottom again because I could very easily. How has it affected relationships? Oh, completely. I mean, I'm not, I've had, I've been with, um, I've been in some great relationship with relationships with some wonderful, wonderful women who wanted a life with me, who wanted to, you know, be married, to have kids, like just really great women. But because of my disease, uh, part of what I can't see beyond is like, it's not just the drinking, but it's life in general. Like, I mean, I, can, I always get to that point of, well, I don't feel like marriage is in the cards. I don't know about kids. And it's all about the addiction. And some of my relationships, there has been an exact correlation with the drinking where it ends, where I am drunk and they can't handle it anymore. You know what I mean? Like there's been like they'll put up with one episode, maybe two, but the third one, they got to get out. And I usually sabotage myself in that regard, too. So, like, I kind of know what I'm doing, you know what I mean? And I know that if I keep drinking, it's like a rebelling kind of thing um, where they're pushed away naturally. So, Lawrence, the, the short answer to your question, it's basically played a part in every single relationship at ending. So, <laughs> I just, I just, I don't know, I guess maybe it was your last relationship. Yeah, yeah that ended because of my drinking. Because I felt like, like, every time I'd see you, it's I was great. like... I was like, Mark's out here running 10Ks. Like he's, yes. you know, he's he's feeling good. Yeah. He's looking good. Things are looking up. And then I wondered what happened. That was it. Yeah, that was Sarah. Um, and she was my last girlfriend. And we broke up about, yeah, it was like around the Super Bowl last year um, where I had a another relapse. And it was just, it was just like, I was just sloppy. And she was there, came over and then, you know, she was just making sure I was okay. You know what I mean? Making sure I was accounted for. And then she knew in her head as she walked out, that's it. I can't do this anymore. Um, and um, so, yeah, that's that's exactly what caused that to end. Um, and I have, that for the first time in my life, since that relationship ended, the first time I'm just totally and completely comfortable and at peace with being a single man. Um, and not, say, not saying no, but, like, if something organic occurs, and then fine. Um, but I am like, I've realized that I am just, I'm wasting people's time. So until I get it figured out, I just got to be honest with my intentions. You know what I mean? Like just be, look, I'm just here for the fun. I'm not here for the relationship. Yeah. You and, know? and I'm broken. I'm broken. Right. And I, and Sarah was such a wonderful woman that I really wanted to make it work. You know what I mean? And she did like there, there was, of course she had her flaws, but like she was ideal. She's like marriage material. Um, but I, I couldn't pull it off. So, you know, did cheers. You, <laughs> do, did you ever like seriously think, do, like, do you want the 
marriage, kids, suburbs thing? No. I, right now, my answer is no. But Was me, that but, ever a thing? Yeah, I think when I was a lot younger. Yeah, when I was a lot younger. I had a serious girlfriend in high school, and I thought we were going the distance. Like, she was a little younger. So I was, like, 17. She was 15, which is a huge deal then. Like, two years, like, sophomore, senior. Yeah. Like, you know, that's a big deal. Um, I went off to college, Illinois State. She stayed back, and, and the irony being that she she had had enough of me. Not nothing to do with drinking. I had I was not a drinker then. Uh, she just was like a high school girl who, you know, couldn't handle her boyfriend being in college. And it wasn't me that was you know I was good. I was going to classes. I was thinking marriage. I was thinking life, and that all came undone. And um, it probably affect like I don't think about her, but it definitely screwed my head up. It screwed my head up. So I went from Family Guy to, shouldn't use that word because it's a hilarious TV show, and people will think I'm talking about Peter Griffin. <laughs> well, um, you were working on Family yeah, Guy. Yeah, I was working on a Family Guy. Um, it's gone downhill since. Now I'm at the score. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so, yeah, that that kind of sent me, like, I, I probably into normalcy at that time because I was, like, I was living this, like, my first year in college, this um, – you know, sort of sedated lifestyle of I'm going to get married. I got to get good grades, and then I said screw it, and I met a bunch of people, and I started drinking and having fun. So I don't. I'm not saying that that led to my alcoholism. I'm just saying I became like a normal college person at that point. Yeah, you and you started to live a different life than what maybe you thought you were planning exactly when you were in high school. Right, right, and maybe I was too like fragile or weak to to accept that because you're put on a pedestal and then you're taken off of it. So. I was like, I mean, and that's another whole show that that relationship, like going forward and the effects of it and the getting back to there was getting back together. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like I never I never considered it like from then on, like maybe like I like the idea of it. I'm surrounded by people like I, my parents have been married for 50 years are still together. My brothers are both married and have kids. So love is around me in that regard. But I, yeah, I'm not like I am at I am at peace right now more than ever with saying even as I get older because I would be panicking in my 30s like I'm never going to meet anybody, mm-hmm. it's never going to happen. Now I am like this is great. I am single and I'm happy and maybe it'll happen when I'm 50. So what? Is work a safe place for you? Uh, I work is like working is safe. It's not always safe when I walk out of here because of the highs and lows that exist in this job. That sometimes it has triggered me to to drink. You know what I mean? Like, cause sometimes it's great. Sometimes you're elated with a performance that you have. Sometimes you're like, I can never do this job again. <laughs> at least I should just say me. Um, that's the way I feel like the highs and lows, I think at times have affected me and caused me to drink. And I also think that I have a very high standard for myself. And I always think, cause you know, I see a psychologist too, to try to figure out the whys and, and things like that. Sound like Matt Nagy there, didn't I? Sure. They'll figure out the why. Be you. Be you, right. To figure out why um, I, like, what the cycle, other than the, you know, inheriting certain alcoholic traits, like, what what is it? And I think some of it is the job. You know what I mean? And it is being a live job and can be stressful in that regard. And like I said, highs and lows. I'll drink I'll drink to anything. <laughs> and, and, I mean, they're, the performance-based aspect of it, of you, you want people to like you. Yes. You know, like yeah. we, we we work in an industry where it's great if people do like you, they tune in to you or they or in the stand of comedian world, they come out and see you like that sort of thing. Like that that's a hard thing to overcome. I think for all of us, when you realize the moment that people don't like you, that there are going to be some people who 
are pre-programmed to not like you and they're never going to like you, it's a difficult thing to to swallow. Especially when it's something that maybe you were insecure about yourself to begin with. Like if somebody hits on something sensitive and, you know, they, they say, oh, uh, Mark talks too fast or something like that, like whatever it is. And then you're like, damn it. This per-, you know, you think that they're right, you know, and there could be. F- I've been found yeah, out. Yeah, I'm a phony. You switched the sample. fraud. <laughs> exactly. You falsified your broadcast research. That's what you did. So that could be, it can make me very sensitive um, in those in those moments. Yeah, that's what it is. Like, we're all the same. We're all the same in, in broadcast. We can get 40 great text messages, and then the 41st that says, you suck because of this is the one where you're like, oh. So I haven't I haven't figured that one out yet. If you have, please let me know. I don't know if I've figured it out. I've I've said that I don't really do uh, New Year's resolutions, but one of mine is that I'm going to try not to be baited into bad situations. I felt like last year in particular, I got baited into some situations where I should have known better in 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 some regards, and I'm trying not to do that. I, and I've the thing about me, I mean, since we're sharing, like the thing about me is that I, I'm an angry guy. Like I, I know that I have that, but I'm a, I'm a long fuse in a big explosion. Mm. So it takes a lot to get me to the point where I explode. But once that happens, hold me back. It's a problem. Like it's a problem. And when I was younger in this business, like it manifested itself in very physical Mm. ways. Mm. And there's a part of me that there's sometimes like I go with people now. It's like you do realize that had this taken had this particular situation taken place 15 years ago, there would be a real like I'm Al Pacino. If I was the man I was five years ago, (laughs) I'd take a flamethrower to this place. Right. You're lucky. You're a lucky person right now. Like, you don't even realize that me going, okay, and being a little passive aggressive is better for you than me being aggressive aggressive. Uh Uh Because back in the day, you would have got grabbed. Like, you would have been grabbed in your collar. And then we would have had a real conversation about who's what. So I tried I'm trying to work through some of that like as I get older and you know I've I've married a woman who has the same type of tendencies wow and you when I just beat each other up no Is that what goes no on? it's you nev- and Mel just square off it's never directed at each other okay it's always like we she was yelling at someone on the street and I was like come here <laughs> like what are you doing don't do it because you're you're this small uh. <laughs> Come over here, Mighty Mouse. What right. are you doing? And with then yourself? ultimately, you'd be the one having to get in the fight then, yeah. too, because then her boyfriend would get involved. Yeah, and, yeah. and then, you know, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Like, I really don't want to be that, but it it's a struggle. Like, when you have some of those things, like, in your own personality, like you have to you, you have to figure out how to best deal with them. So I, I'm trying to... Make good decisions every day. Have you grabbed a collar here at the score? Is there you? Oh, you have. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me who? Um, I won't say names, okay. but there were. I'm sure this is a long time ago. It if, was. If, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Is legitimately a long time ago. Okay. But there, there have been. I could. I could tell you one story because I joke okay. about this on please, the air all the time. Please do. When I first got, I was getting ready to get moved to. 
I think it was the Murph and Fred morning show at the time. Um, and I was working on overnights. And, you know, I was working with Les and everything was fine. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to work with Murph. Later on, I would end up being the executive producer of the morning show. And so I remember Mike Alzamora telling me that that's what was going to happen. Not saying, hey, we're thinking about moving you to the morning show. What did you think about that? Here's what we're doing. This is what we're doing. And when I objected to it, it became a because I said so type situation. And like that was trigger. That was my trigger. Uh huh. And the Jonathan, like Jonathan Hood, like saved my career that day because I was going to put hands on Mike Alzamora at that point. And, you know, I'm a little guy and I, I'm sure I was going through like a Crohn's um, flare up, which usually makes me a little bit more hostile really? okay. than than ordinarily. And like Jonathan, like because I was real little, like I, I, I was probably 150 pounds because when it got really bad, like you, you're not eating, you lose a lot of weight, like mm. that sort of stuff. Like Jonathan, like picked me up and like took me out to the alley. <laughs> and Jonathan's a big man, yeah, a giant yes. man. Yes. And so he kind of saved my career that day. I mean, it wasn't the only time that it happened, but wow. but I mean, there, I I get you. Like uh-huh. I, I get where some of those things that like you're trying to work through. Have you found that therapy's been helpful? Yeah, absolutely. I've done it on and off. I'm not currently doing it. I stopped doing it once I, the the bear season started. So, and it was during my Cubs Cubs to Bears off season that I was last doing it. So I'm probably going going to get back into it. Yeah, it all it's like one of those things where if you have an hour session with a psychologist or a medical professional in that regard, counselor, whatever the credentials are, you'll usually get one or two good things out of it. You know what I mean? You'll mm-hmm. walk away like not all of it's good. You know, some of it's just like whatever. But then you'll get like a couple points. You'll get a couple things off your chest, and you will. I always walked out of therapy um, feeling good. There's never been a time where I was like drained by it or and a lot of people are a lot of people walk out drained and exhausted and emotionally overcome um i always walked out feeling good like some self-actualization and some things like that i learned about myself that maybe i didn't know or here here is back to matt Nagy. here's the why of why i did that i was like oh okay other people do this too and there's a reason i'm acting like this and there's a way to stop acting like that that's a goal that's that's an absolute goal well i wish you a lot of luck in your journey on that and your sobriety. Thank you. And if I can ever be helpful, I know that, I mean, it doesn't really fit with the program, but I am available. Thank you. And and for you, I would I would make myself available no lot. matter what. I appreciate that. And now I feel bad because my wife used to serve you drinks. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't, honestly, this is, uh, there was a time, and this is going to sound like a denial alcoholic talking. There was a time, I was not an alcoholic until I was 35. Like, I was a controlled drinker. I, okay. drew, I was the designated driver. And I will say this, Lawrence, to... To that end, with your anger issues, have a drink every once in a while, man. Yeah. Relax. Yeah, you sure. don't even drink, do you? No, I don't. You're a normie. I hate you, normies. I don't. Need, I, I drink occasionally. Okay. Um, I'm trying not to drink that often, but I, I enjoy like I, I, the, I haven't been drunk in forever. I was actually thinking about this I the other day. You. I hate you. But the, but no one here out. Well, technically now, like no one here has seen me drunk. Like no one at the ever. score, really, not ever, because the last person to see me drunk was golf, and so my I have a rule. The rule is, I have to really like you to drink with you, okay, and I have to love you to be drunk in front. Oh, of you. Okay, so you've never done it at the, the Christmas parties no. or no. good. I've had a drink, okay, but I've never 
let loose. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's been like a couple of sips of a glass of wine. Okay. Well, that's good. Keep that going. Good for you. Yeah. It's not bad. I just know that, you know, I you don't want to... You don't want to have any problems, and when you combine alcohol and certain anger issues, <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a hole in the wall. Yes. Come here, Elzamora. Yeah. Come here, you. He was almost a hole in the wall. Yeah. Yeah. He was the only one. He's not a really big guy either, is he? No. Elzamora, if and I, I remember. And see, here's the thing. You could have I, taken him. I'm sizing it up. Yeah, that's you. I almost fought Alfonso Boone. <laughs> what? I've never told you this story. The former White Sox? No, the former Bear. Oh, the former Bear. I don't, well, who am I thinking the of? Boone, I'm thinking of Boone Logan. Boone Sorry. Logan. Yeah, Alfonso Boone. Yes. Bone Lugan. Um, okay, so here's a story. This I'm, is good. Go. I know, right? <laughs> Here it was. Yeah. You were giving and I'm giving. I love it. I love it. I'm covering the Bears. This was during all the Tank Johnson stuff. So I'm in the locker room every day where Tank had a friend named Poe. Poe ended up being murdered at the ice bar, which ice bar, yes. as, as the Bears beat reporter, that was quite the morning oh where God. I'm actually talking to the coroner and police and all sorts of stuff trying to get information. Well, before that, it all happened. A source inside the Bears had told me that there was some friction between teammates in regard to what was going on in Tank Johnson's um life. And so I I dug around a little bit and I heard it from multiple places. The first place I heard it from was impeccable. And when we're done with the podcast, I'll tell you uh about who told me that. But I got it and I I spoke very carefully about it on the air because it had been circulating in in the ether. And I talked with Doug Buffon about it on the air. So after that, Alfonso Boone, Zach had gone up there. I was one of those days where I was hosting, so I wasn't up there. And he was like, you know, tell your boy that he needs to stop spreading lies about what's going on in our room. And I'm like, okay. Like, my my professional credibility is being judged. I know that I have the story, but I... I mean, this is this is going to sound so stupid, but it's so true. I'm from the south side of Chicago, mm-hmm. okay? And he told Zach, he was like, tell, tell Lawrence that I'm looking for him. And I was like, oh, yeah? You're looking for me. Triggered. Immediately. So Zach had told me about it, and he's like, I'm just passing this along. So he was like, be ready tomorrow when you get back to Hallis Hall. And I was like, oh, I'll be ready. All right. And I... I beelined it for Boone after practice, and I said, you said some things yesterday that my reporting wasn't true. Here's my microphone and my recorder. What about my report wasn't true? I'm going to give you the opportunity to to fact check what I reported. He's like, oh, man, get out of here, man. I don't want to talk. I said, oh, no, 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 no. You said you were looking for me. I'm looking for you now. So what's up? So then he walks away. Bears PR is like, what the hell is going on? And I said, Alfonso has some issues with something that I reported. I would like for him to then go on the record and clear that up if he thinks that what I reported was false. Then we go to open locker room. I beeline it to Boone's locker. And I'm like, you said you were looking for me. 
I'm here now. So what's the problem? So now the locker room is seeing what's going on. And by then I had had some friends in the locker room. It was another one of those situations where I get carried out. This time it was John Gilmore, the the tight end Uh who kind of carried me out. And then I, you know, I calmed down and Bears PR was like, what the hell was that? And blah, 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 blah. And I told them what the deal was. And then I talked with Boone a little bit later on. He's like, you're crazy. And I'm like, (laughs) uh, (laughs) I said, I don't like when my integrity is, is put into question because I take it very seriously. And I take covering you guys really seriously. And I said, you know, I talked to him and I said, look, I got this from a pretty credible source and then checked it. And he's like, you know, he, he basically said, look, without saying it, he said he knew what I reported was true. Wow. But he, didn't he, want to felt, be it. he felt it was necessary to protect the locker room. Okay. But you, yeah, dude, you, you, you got balls, man. That is, I, I mean, you protected yourself, your integrity. I'm glad it didn't come to, me getting knocked of, out. Absolutely. Or just anybody getting hurt or fists being thrown. Yeah, but, so, yeah. sometimes you have to even take an ass whooping to to defend your honor. That's true. But you know what? I'm from the western suburbs. <laughs> I'm not from the south side. So I, I I don't know if I've got that same instinct. I yeah, yeah. I'm I'm someone actually described it to me as like if you're talking about fight or flight, then my first instinct is always fight. Oh yeah, I'm running, man. I'm getting back on the metro. Sometimes it is I mean, some situations that mine is flight, but a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's fight. Yeah. I will fight. I'm the meme. I'm the the gif of the little kid. I'll fight you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what the good thing about that, Lawrence, is no regrets then. You can, you never have to think back to that, like, I should have said something or, like, you got to be a self-fulfilled man in that regard. That's the smarter way to do it, though. Right. The smarter way is to live. <laughs> you know, the smarter <laughs> way is to, to live, to, to fight yeah. another day. Passive aggressive yeah. instead of aggressive. Yeah, okay. instead of yeah. aggressive, aggressive, yeah, full so, circle. Yes. So you know, it's it's all like it's a process. Mm-hmm. We it all is. talk about our process. That's the theme of this podcast. I feel like you and I both have a process. I, think, I feel like we helped each other. I today. do. I actually, I really. This has honestly been kind of therapeutic for me. Honestly, God, like people always like a tiptoe around me with the alcoholic thing. Like I like it when people ask me about it. Maybe not at first, but I like it because I want the person that is with me to feel comfortable, and it helps me. It helps me to talk about like just doing this show with you. Um, it, it helps me to like discuss, like we just had a meeting. I don't have to go to a meeting now. Tonight. Okay. This we'll go good. still go to a meeting. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll but, call my sponsor too. But I thank you for this, yes. man. And, and being as, as forthcoming and honest as you were, um, this is a, this is going to be an interesting, I'm, I'm looking forward to the feedback uh, on this, yeah, yeah. this one. Um, cause it's a little different. Oh, you're going to run all that alcoholic stuff. No, oh, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm running it all. Oh, please do. You, I have nothing. You I, have like nothing said, to be embarrassed about. I just no. admitted that I almost fought a football player. <laughs> <laughs> Alfonso Boone wasn't that good anyway. Yeah, but he's still 320 pounds. Yeah, that's true. Probably not the right guy to take yeah, it, on. Yeah, it was. But I mean, you I'm defended yourself. That's I'm, what I'm proud of you. Yeah, yeah. it was stupid. Bears. And I 
Bears. Bears. In Bears indeed. Bears sir. indeed. Yes. I hope that they're good. I hope that they win a Super Bowl. And I hope that you get a ring. Don't start. Don't start. Because I would love that you had a Cubs World oh. Series ring and a Bears Super Bowl ring. See, everybody's going to ask me if the Bears win the Super Bowl. They're gonna, everybody's going to do it. The same thing's going to happen. And this time I'm not going to get it, and then I'm going to drink. I'm Happy Lawrence? I am. Uh, I don't want you to drink. No, I would But I, I will caution all Bears fans Bears. with two words. Vikings, Jaguars. Because if we turn back oh. the clock to a year ago... Everyone thought that that was going to be the Super Bowl this year, and neither one of those teams made the playoffs. And one of them, the Jaguars, were particularly awful. Real bad. Really bad. Real bad. Yeah, like, and and, and look out, and I thought you were going to say, like, Vikings, look out for, I would say look out for the Vikings again this year. I would agree with you. Talent is still there. You don't have to worry about Detroit, though. No, that's the one team. (laughs) That's the one team, man. You never have to really worry about Detroit. If they, you know, it wouldn't be shocking if they were better, but I'm not worried about Detroit. I don't know if you keep old magazines. I was flipping through one the other day. I kept the SI football preview. <sighs> wrong. Never give predictions. All wrong. Oh my god! I'm sure the Bears were in the basement, right? I, I think they had the Lions like ten and six. Ooh. They really thought that the yep. new coach was going to yep. be worth ten wins. Yep. Oh, so wrong. And, and they got. Every division wrong except for I think the Patriots. Yeah, you got the Patriots right. <laughs> you have to get the Patriots and they got, right. They got the NFC East right. Like they got the Cowboys winning the huh, division right. Really? But I want to say they had the Giants at eight and eight. And I was just going, ooh, ooh, all of these are terrible yeah. predictions. And the reason, like that whole that whole issue is amazing because at the back of it there is an essay from Bryce uh, Love, the running back at Stanford, that wrote this whole thing about why I didn't go pro. Let me tell you about my experience at Stanford and how much I love it here. You just sounded like Chris Rock, by the way. Let me tell you why I go pro. I actually do a decent you Chris do? Rock. You do? Okay, all right, because it just came out a little bit. And and at the end of it, of at the end of this past season, he hurt himself and is probably going to tumble in the draft because of it. Oh. So everything about that issue of Sports Illustrated is wrong. Nobody wants you to go back and read their predictions, though, Lawrence. It's why I try to stay away from it. I'll give you analysis, but I don't necessarily want to. And I feel bad when I ask the guys. Like I have to ask the guys on on the NBC Sports Chicago show, like their prediction. And I feel bad because, one, I never have to make one. So I get to be a genius on the show no matter what. Other than when I said Cody Parkey is probably going to cost them a playoff game. Oh, you did. I did. November 11th. It's timestamp. You know what they did? My producers there, like, put dramatic music behind it and had it in black and white. Oh, you're so, <laughs> so, so after, so after grainy, the game, against, was it grainy yes, too? Oh, so after beautiful. the game against uh, the Eagles, like coming back from break, they were like, yeah, um, Lawrence, we got your prediction uh, about Cody parking. I was like, wait, what? And then I saw it on the monitor. I was like, oh, my God, this looks like a Cody Parkey attack ad. If he was, like, running for office. <laughs> Cody Parkey can't make kicks. Paid for people of my party. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, wow, you got that one. You yeah, got that one. It's, <laughs> Groats, you're yeah. the best, Thank man. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate you. Thank you. I told you that episode was going to be a little different. And I'm really, really happy that Mark was – willing to share as much as he shared. And I always feel like whenever someone, there have been times in the history of the podcast where people have said, 
man, I I didn't know if I should have shared that much. And I always offer them. I said, look, if if you're uncomfortable with something, we can edit it out. I would prefer not to do that. But if you don't want to put yourself on front street for something or someone else on front street for something, we can do that. And the cool thing about all of those episodes is that people have said, no, leave it in. And I think that in cases of whether it's anxiety that some people have talked about, I know Kelly Kroll talked a lot about her faith and, and some of the, the fears that she has about being in this business. I think that it can be really helpful. And I, I think the same thing can be said for Mark Grody. I'll just tell you that the whole time that we were in the room together was extremely therapeutic. And when I was talking about, you know, my wife serving him drinks, White Panther was um, a bartender. She's a bartender for 20 years, and she used to serve groats. Like, that's one of the ways that they know each other. So it wasn't like he was coming over to the house. It was in a professional setting that that was going down. Let me go to the emails. So I want to thank Grody for a, a great episode, and I – I imagine that there are people that will listen to the podcast that it can help. And it clearly was helping him, so I'm all there for it. And it helped me, too, like to talk about some of the stuff that, that I deal with. And I, it's not to the level of what Mark Rohde was saying, but it was nice to be able to talk to someone about some of that stuff. Okay? Here are the emails. Houseofelpodcast at gmail.com. There are a lot of people who try to get in on the Club Dub shirt, and I threw it out via email saying that, the question was about the the John Weideman episode. And the question was, what were the what was the thing that the number one thing that he learned from his father and what makes him different when he's on the road than other people? And the answer to that question was he learned faith, faith in God from his father. And he goes to church on the road. He's always looking for a Catholic mass on the road. And so a lot of people jumped in, and, and Brian got the right answer. I was really – he got it quick, too. I don't know if he had just been listening or what, but he got it real quick. So congratulations to Brian for getting the answer on this. So that's cool. We'll have more questions. The questions will be like that. If you want to get yourself a Club Dub shirt, thanks to the people over at Bandwagon Champs. Here are some emails. Richard says, hey, still waiting for the White Panther episode. Is that still on the table? Yes. As I'm recording this, White Panther is trapped in San Diego. You should see the eye roll and the air quotes that I'm doing because I'm recording this right before it's like the coldest day of the year. And she went out to a social workers convention and it's in San Diego, so she's having a great time. It's 70 degrees. And then they were like, we don't have any flights coming back until Friday. Like, really? You're stuck out there a whole week. Huh. Interesting how that would happen. But absolutely, it is still on the table. I'm looking forward to you all meeting her in a radio way. Let her speak for herself instead of me speaking for her. This is from Tim. Hey, Lawrence, love the podcast and glad the questions were about this episode. My first time through it, it was on in the background, so I missed quite a bit. His greatest lessons from his dad was his faith. Yeah, Tim, you're right, but you're late. So I want to already beat to it. But I appreciate you saying it was on in the background, and then you went back for another listen. It's really nice that you did that. Um, there'll be other chances, and we'll see if you can win. 
This from Ben. Hey, Lawrence, I really enjoyed the Tony Andraki episode of your podcast. I emailed you a few months ago about requesting him as a guest. Job well done for delivering him. Also, knowing your love of donuts, I want to know if you've ever been to Donut Fest at Chop Shop on North Avenue. I went on Sunday, and it was amazing. Fire cakes and stands are my favorite vendors. Keep up the great work on the podcast. No, I haven't been to anything like that. You know, I... It's weird. I actually don't like to do that. Like, I don't want to sample a bunch of different donuts at one time. I would rather people give me recommendations, and then when I have the urge to go get a donut, then I have a new place to go get a donut from instead of, oh, well, I'm going to – I don't want to eat – as weird as it sounds, because you know me, I, I don't want to eat six donuts in one day. I just don't. I don't want to – I would rather – one weekend go and get a donut and then another weekend go to another place. I will say that last week I was really good. Like I was being very good about everything as far as like workout and diet goes. But when I drove Panther to the airport coming back, I just had to stop at Huck Fen. I had to. And they, it was late in the morning. So they were like out of donuts, but the apple fritter was staring me in the face and I'll just give you this pro tip. The donuts at Huck Finn are phenomenal. The sleeper pick at Huck Finn is the fudge brownie. They have it right there on the desk. They make them fresh. They bring them in. Get the fudge brownie. And if you're going to Huck Finn, get the fudge brownie with ice cream on top of it. Fantastic. So I got myself an apple fritter. So no, I don't... I don't know if I would ever go to a festival like that unless someone like made me the grand marshal or, you know what I mean? Like something like that. I don't think that I would want to sample that many donuts in that little amount of time, but I appreciate it. Thanks as always for the emails. They're great. And thanks for listening to this episode. Please do me a favor. I haven't been saying this in the last few episodes and I should retweets are better than likes. Tag someone on this episode that you think might like it. Someone who likes Mark Grody or doesn't maybe even follow me on Twitter or whatever, but they love Mark Grody and his stories about the Bears and the Cubs and get down with it. I think that that that, that would be more helpful. Retweets are better than likes for sure. Next week, I can already tell you that our guest is going to be Dion Miller because Dion and I chopped it up for like 45 minutes and it's a great episode. Man, I can't wait for you to hear it. So we got our next guests, and we got some other great ones coming up soon. Thanks for listening to episode 54. It's appreciated. Peace.